Welcome back to Decouple. Today I'm joined by a returning guest, James Kralenstein, whose previous two appearances and episodes on the past, present, and future of American nuclear energy have stunned myself and listeners with James' near encyclopedic knowledge and sharp analyses. Uh, Dylan, um, producer and, and uh, co-conspirator here at Decouple, he's often reminding me to stop calling people savants. Um, but perhaps... I can just use it as an adjective, savant-like skills. Um, I think I uh, got a lot of feedback from people saying, who the hell is this guy and how does he know so much? Um, some really respected people in the field at MIT and other places. So not to fluff your feathers too much, uh, James, but um, made a big impact on those last two episodes and uh, looking forward to uh, having you back today. Great. I'm glad to be here. And uh, thanks for uh, fluffing my feathers, I suppose. <laughs> All right. So the topic of the day. Um I'm labeling it small misunderstood reactors. How does that sound to you? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right. Um, small misunderstood. I don't know how misunderstood they are, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go into that maybe and see. For sure. For sure. I mean, I have this, like, this is the need to, to categorize things, to create taxonomies for things in order to be able to discuss them. And, you know, we're pretty wonkish. So we like to go into details and I think get frustrated by terms which are overly broad um, insufficiently specific and potentially misleading, particularly to people, you know, with a cursory knowledge outside of the field. And I would say that, you know, includes almost every single policymaker and government official I've ever run into. So it, it's a pet peeve for me um, because of some of the misconceptions, you know, such as the idea that everything labeled as an SMR can be produced like a Model T in a factory driven to site, no need for any civil works, et cetera. Um, and also some of the ways in which um, I think it's been a little bit self-defeating in terms of, you know, the the form of nuclear that has social license and therefore gets sort of a, a singular focus um, in policy circles where nuclear needs to be floated more as a trial balloon. And that often ends up, um, I think, creating some severe limitations. I got back from Australia about a month ago uh, where SMR has been sort of the the focus and the unfortunate consequences there are no currently deployed SMRs in the Western world. And that creates a pretty shaky foundation for, for that advocacy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's where I'm coming from, where, where my frustrations are at. Um, but we, we have a lot to talk about today and, and maybe I'll just try and lay out a couple things and I'm sure we'll deviate here and there, um, which I'm looking forward to, but I thought it was of interest. Uh, great British nuclear um, has sort of re- revealed a short list of reactors that they're, they're interested in pursuing. All of them are um, small at least. Um, and they're all, uh, existing light water, boiling water technologies, which I think is very interesting because, um, another sort of face of SMRs, uh, amongst policymakers or, you know, the use of advanced nuclear often infers, you know, different, uh, coolants and moderators and, and so-called gen four technologies. Um, so again, I thought great time to, to touch on this and really looking forward to, to hearing some of your, your takes. Sure. So, you know, I think it's a really, you know, SMRs, I think, are at this point sort of more of almost a marketing term than they are a technical reality in a lot of ways. You know, if you look at, you know, what we classically, I think, want to think about in an SMR is literally like a something like, as you said, a Model T or a Toyota Camry, that it comes off of a factory line and we just sort of plop it somewhere and turn it on. But except for the micro reactors, which are, you know, below 50 or 30 megawatts, uh, either thermal or electrical. Once again, this is where it gets very iffy, uh, but generally below, definitely below 50 megawatts electrical. None of the micro reactor, none of those SMRs, for example, that were in the sort of great British nuclear, which is a, I have a joke about that name. But regardless, you know, um, 
those are not reactors that don't require any civil works. In, in many ways, I would like to think of them as, as really small, modularized, you know, regular nuclear power plants. And I think that has advantages and disadvantages. Um, but I want to pull back for one second and ask this very basic question, right? In I think, you know, a lot of areas in the world, right, especially emerging economies and lower income con- economies that really do need a lot more energy access, right, do need for prosperity, for just, incre- you know, increasing human health and well-being. You know, in those places, we really do see grid constraints, right? You know, the grids are not going to be able to take, you know, if you go to a country like Rwanda, which has only a couple hundred megawatts, say, of installed capacity in total on the entire grid, you can't pop a thousand megawatt plant down there and I think it will work or it will be anything easy. But in higher income countries, um, and in particularly what we think of as the West, you know, if that's whether it's South Korea, the U.S. or Canada or Western or Eastern Europe, we have very, very large, um, you know, uh, generating assets, many of them fossil, many of whom already have all the transmission interconnections already there, all the siting. And so it begs the question, what are we thinking about when we're trying to do SMRs? Because the whole reason why the nuclear power industry through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s scaled bigger is because there really are cost capacity scaling uh, advantages that you get out of going big. Um, And you see this in power plants just generally. It's why, despite the fact that we all are surrounded by small modular internal combustion engines called cars, we don't power the world when fossil fuels by just running, you know, thousands and thousands of 100 or 200 horsepower engines, right? We generally go to, you know, big 100, 200, 300, 400 megawatt, uh, you know, combustion turbines or whatever the fossil acid or bigger on coal. And so I'm very worried. I'll just be honest with you that the the obsession around SMRs is making us make some pretty questionable decisions um, about what the next reactor design should be. And I don't think that they are solving, you know, I don't think SMR, I think SMRs, to be honest with you, are primarily, as we talked about in the last two episodes, they're a nuclear engineering solution to a financial engineering problem, right? The And I don't really see that many other real benefits for SMRs for for deploying for baseload power for what we, I think, really need to decarbonize in the United States. Now, I realize it's a very provocative position, but I I think I can walk through a little bit why I think that. Um, And I think the, the, you know, there's a pretty good case to be made. And just to, to finish up here, you know, I'm concerned about what we've now seen in now both the state of Illinois and in the state of California, where, you know, we, we had some heroic pro-nuclear advocacy done in the state of Illinois that got the legislature to overturn their moratorium on, you know, new nuclear power plants. And the governor vetoed it with the ostensible reason, this is what he claimed at least, that it allowed non-SMRs, that is non, you know, regular large modular reactors, if you want to call them that, to use a Mark Nelson term, um, because it allowed those large plants and didn't prohibit didn't only allow for small modular reactors, right? Literally, the you know, Jay Pritzker literally said, this bill did o- allowed non-SMR reactors and therefore I'm vetoing it. 
And then we saw a similar bill be introduced in the California legislature that would only legalize nuclear power plants for SMRs. So I think we really do need to start diving in pretty into the rationale between SMRs. And I'll just I'll just end with saying I'm not anti-SMRs. I'm certainly not anti, you know, non-light water reactor technology at all. I think they have a really important, um, incredibly important role to play. I just think that we have maybe undersold the advantage of the existing fleet reactors and the existing new larger reactor designs um, and maybe oversold some of the advantages of SMRs. Yeah, I mean, definitely that's been a big part of our struggle up here in Canada. Um, again, SMRs being the nuclear technology that uh, you know, are perceived to have social license um, and a lot of our, our legislation, be it the investment tax credits, um, and, and others here, our fight at Canadian Nuclear Energy was to make it nuclear inclusive across the board, existing nuclear, candor nuclear refurbishments, et cetera. And, and we've been successful in that. Um, but but I definitely I think the instinct of the industry was to sort of roll with roll with that and say, well, we have license for this. And it's you know really a brand new phenomenon, probably only a year old in Canada that we're, we're talking large again. So so that is interesting. I mean, a, a couple of the rationales um, and I thought this was a really interesting distinction. I think it probably came. We touched on it in an earlier conversation, but. Um, obviously, this this uh, engineering nuclear engineering solution to a, a, a financing problem. The, this difference between um, something being financeable and something being economic, I think, are, are are really interesting. So I'm wondering if you can expand on that a little bit. Yeah, just right before I, I go, you know, I say it's a financial engineering solution, a nuclear engineering solution to a financial engineering problem. But I think you hit also, as I also was talking about, it's also a PR solution. You know, a a nuclear engineering solution to a PR problem. It's a a um, nuclear engineering solution to a political problem. And I think that this is sometimes, you know, as I think I mentioned, my father's a nuclear engineer. I, I've literally known a nuclear engineer very closely since the day I was born. Sometimes nuclear engineers uh, view every problem as nuclear engineering problems. Yeah. And not every problem is a nuclear engineering problem in the world. And, and so... When we have financial engineering problems, maybe we should try to do some financial engineering. When we have PR problems, maybe we should do PR issues and advocacy, not have a nuclear engineering solution to that problem. So going back to your exact thing, let's let's expand on this difference between financeability and economical, right? So one of the problems that I've, I've talked about, especially in the United States, is the way that we finance new nuclear power plants, right? And for these large light water reactors that we've classically built in the U.S., actually the only reactors we've really actually built in the U.S. uh, for at least a very long time, you know, they are financed, as I said, as a system financing approach where you basically have an entire utility pledge all of its assets and all of its revenue to be able to service the debt that is used, the bonds, for example, that are issued to build that large light water reactor. And just to sum it, sum it up, the basic problem is you're building a $15 billion plant or a $30 billion plant, hopefully a little bit cheaper, but in the double-digit billions, let's say, for a two-unit plant, I don't think we're going to get – no matter what we do, I think it's going to be double-digit billions for a two-unit two like gigawatt-scale plant. The problem is, is that it's such a large amount of money that if the project fails, you really can threaten the entire utility or the careers of the people who are ordering that at the utility management. And with an SMR, as their name implies, they are just smaller, which means that the overall price tag is going to be much tinier than that, even if the price per megawatt 
is going to be more expensive. But because they make less megawatts, even though it might be a little bit more expensive per megawatt, the overall price is going to be a lot lower. So the if you think about it from a corporate or a financeability perspective, they said, well, if this project fails, it'll be bad. No one wants a project to fail. But, you know, surviving a billion dollar or two billion dollar project failure is much, much easier for a company than, it, than um, surviving a 15 or 20 billion dollar project failure. And the problem is, as you just put out, pointed out, that doesn't mean, however, that ultimately the power per megawatt hour or the even just a nameplate adjusted basis is going to be cheaper. In fact, we have a lot of reasons. And most of the rigorous peer-reviewed analyses that have looked at this have indicated that SMRs are likely going to be more expensive per megawatt hour uh, or per megawatt electrical just on a nameplate basis than, um, a lar- than a comparable large reactor would be. I think this is a real problem because ultimately nuclear power plants are creating a, you know, I, people are going to object, but it is a, it is a, a weird commodity, but it is a commodity that is sold. And we're going to have a real hard time if the first couple of units that we are building uh, are going to be producing power that is more expensive than we would classically think. So, so you know, I, I can see the rationale um, amongst the Western nuclear industry that it's better to build something than nothing. And if this is all we can build and this pretend, potentially kickstarts a return to large nuclear, and that's, I think, some of the rationale up here in Canada is let's prove we can do it. I, I'm on board with that. I can't, I can't uh, you know, disagree with that. Um, you know, it is interesting, you know, hearing and uh, getting a sense of, uh, you know, the loan programs office mandate and what the limitations are, but seeing that there is hundreds of billions of dollars to throw around that it couldn't happen in a more coordinated fashion or there couldn't be you know more aggressive financing of some large nuclear to keep the ap1000 supply chain intact domestically etc but um given those confines like I, I i can see the rationale and i'm not i'm not unsympathetic to it um maybe we'll just I'd, maybe reaction to that very quickly but uh, like there are a lot of stuff i'd want to move on to but just to that question of you know as a, as a means to kickstart a large program again maybe the west just can't jump there yeah, um, I, I think that once again, I am I am very happy that SMR projects are going to get off the, the grounds. In particular, you know, I think the ones that are going to really um, get off the ground, like the BWX 300, I think it like all of the, you know, because it's 300 megawatts electrical. So it's going to be an interesting thing to see if that plan in particular is economical compared to the large light water reactors. But here's where I'm, you know, coming from. If you look at the LPO, Right. And the DOE, the U.S. Department of Energy more broadly. Right. They have basically said that the United States, in order to achieve what is U.S. government policy by 2050, they're going to need 200 gigawatts at least of new nuclear power in California. It's dozens and dozens of gigawatts in New York State. It's dozens and dozens of gigawatts of new firm generation that is low carbon. And the only real firm, low carbon, scalable technology that actually has been deployed that we have right now, at least, is is nuclear. You know, there's carbon capture sequestration, hypothetically, for natural gas, but we've never really brought it to scale and certainly not brought it to, you know, providing 20 percent of the U.S. electrical power, 70 percent of France's. So. I'm looking at that and I am sympathetic. I'm also sympathetic that there are a lot of places that we're going to need SMRs, by the way, in the United States. But when we're talking about the bulk amount of low carbon power, of firm low carbon generation that we need, the question that I have for everyone is, does it really make sense to be going 50 megawatts or 300 megawatts at a time 
um, and possibly getting a lot of economic disadvantage versus us really looking hard about, okay, we need to build the SMRs, but what is the policy decisions that we need to make to build the large light water reactors as well? And I don't think we spent a lot of time on that. And one of the things I'm just worried about, just to be honest with you, is we're already seeing some of these issues with SMRs happen. You know, I think the SMR project that is furthest along in the United States right now is the carbon-free power project by UAMS out in Utah. All those can be built in Idaho National Lab. And what we just saw, I think, is sort of giving credence to my warning a little bit that, you know, from 2022 to, you know, January of 2023, the uh, power price of that project more than doubled per megawatt hour. The estimated, it hasn't been built yet. This is just the paper estimate of what it's going to go in, going from $60 a megawatt hour to over $119 a megawatt hour. And that's before any building has been done, right? Uh, before we really actually have even the most detailed cost estimates completed. And I think this is, you know, that project may not actually survive. That project may never actually get off the ground. And, you know, I think we do need to be thinking, are we going to be ever able to get the economics of the SMRs competitive enough with the, what the large plants can provide that we're able to launch this um, in a really sustained way that would get us to that point where we're delivering thousands and thousands of megawatts of, of new uh, nuclear capacity. And, and I, I just, you know, once again, the modeling is just not supportive of this idea that, um, you know, these plants are going to be necessarily as competitive as the large plants are. And we're seeing that happen, begin to happen now in real life as well. I, I think there's a key difference between nice to have and need to have nuclear. And, you know, when there's pragmatic reasons like energy security, again, driving decisions in Eastern Europe, um, that leads to the pragmatic decisions to solve the, the financing problem and do the most economic nuclear. So in my mind, that just doesn't exist uh, in, in the U.S. Um, it is interesting sort of seeing from the uh, more, I guess, anti-renewable side of the nuclear advocacy movement, some sort of cheerleading on the spiraling costs of offshore wind. Um, and I think some of those cost drivers are very much going to apply to new nuclear as a capital intensive resource dependent on a bunch of different commodities um, so just, just a little side note there. Um, I am, you know, very interested in following along here because, you know, over the last 10 years, um, there's been a lot of excitement about, uh, again, so-called advanced nuclear gen four nuclear. I thought it was very interesting that the, you know, six front runners in great British nuclear, um, you know, reality TV show, the, the great runoff, whatever we want to call it, um, are all traditional light water technologies. Um, so I think that that sort of, leads me to want to to dive this issue a little bit more um talk about some of the uh drive behind the excitement for gen 4 in the last 10 years i think we're going to touch a little bit on sort of venture capital um and how that's shaped um, a lot of you know planning and imagination in the nuclear space but first off i guess um are you surprised um by the shortlist uh for for great no. british nuclear oh. no not for great british nuclear i think you know Here's the, uh, you know, I, I call it sort of the Gen 4, it's kind of ironic. I call them the sort of back to the future reactors. Yeah. Because if you go back to 1950, right, remember the first, uh, you know, nuclear power generation was not by a light water reactor. Uh, you know, EBR1, experimental breeder reactor number one, was of course a liquid metal, sodium, potassium, eutectic, fast breeder reactor. And actually that was the first reactor 
uh, that produced any sort of meaningful amounts of electric power. This was way before uh, we ever got shipping port or, you know, a, a, lo- a light water reactor nuclear power plant. You know, these reactors have been around for basically from the birth of the nuclear industry to begin with, including molten salt reactors, right? Uh, you could go down the list, uh, high temperature gas reactors. Um, here's, the, here's the truth. We need advanced nuclear uh, in a decarbonized world because light water reactors, by their very nature of using light water as a coolant or heavy water, you know, water as a coolant, you know, it gets very, very challenging to get to very high temperatures. Uh, It's not impossible, of course, but you really start, you know, the pressure really, really begins getting very difficult to deal with, with water um, at, at much higher temperatures. And, you know, a light water reactor is generally providing steam at, you know, 300 degrees Celsius, maybe a little bit higher than that. And for a lot of process heat applications, we're going to need to go to much higher temperatures. And, and if we actually get to a world in which we really do need, have a lot more nuclear than we do have now, we have fuel cycle needs as well to breed thorium or to really have a plutonium based sort of, uh, you know, fuel cycle, um, we're not anywhere close to that. So there's real important applications about for advanced reactors. But my note of caution here is, you know, we think of nuclear power as a firm, reliable source of generation because it is right now. But if you go back historically into the 60s and 70s, nuclear power, including in the light water reactor, were not particularly reliable. And the real technology that we got is we learned how to master that tech, right? We learned how to master that fuel, that coolant chemistry, that, uh, you know, the fuel, you know, the cladding and the, and the fuel rod interactions. What is going on in a nuclear power plant and a nuclear reactor is magic. It is alchemy in many ways. You are literally taking atoms and you're splitting them into two or more daughter nuclei that may be unstable and decay into a bunch of other elements. The chemistry, for example, just to give one example here of this is really, really challenging and something that is not actually dealt with in almost any other place in chemical engineering or in in chemistry in general. You know, when a nuclear fuel rod chemically is one of the most interesting things that exists because you literally have dozens and dozens of chemical elements simultaneously being produced and popping in and out of, uh, you know, sort of going to the left and to the right on the periodic table as they go through beta decay or alpha decay. So it is an incredibly interesting, complex chemical environment that is not easy to master. And it requires a lot of, just to be honest, real world experience. And the issue that we have with a lot of these non-light water reactor technologies is not that they aren't great, not that they aren't extremely important to develop. Is, is that they're not technologically mature in the same way that we see light water reactor technology. And this is not just hypothetical, right? If we look at the history of non-light water reactors, even among pioneering nuclear countries, whether it's the United States, Russia, France, England, right, we don't see the same reliability coming um, you know, manifesting. If we take, for example, the 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 biggest non-light water reactor power plant the United States has ever built, which is Fort St. Vrain, which is a high temperature gas cooled reactor in Colorado, right? Over the 10 years that that plant operated, the capacity factor 
didn't hit 16% cumulatively. It was 15.9% over the plant's entire life. Now, this doesn't mean that high-temperature gas reactors are bad. Just as if the operational challenges we had associated with light water reactors in the 60s and 70s doesn't mean light water reactor technology is bad. It means, though, that we do not have the real-world operating experience and understand all of those challenges that, to be honest, are almost impossible to fully exhaustively get through until you build one of these plants and turn it online. And what I would just ask us to realize is that I don't think we have prepared ourselves um, in the proper way to actually deploy Generation 4 technologies. I'll give you one very easy example. The West right now does not have a fast neutron source. We do not, a fast neutron source that is actually a a nuclear reactor, you know, ignoring accelerator driven sort of, sort of magic uh, or fuser generated magic, right? You know, when we're qualifying a new, you know, nuclear fuel, one of the things that you do is a test irradiation, right? You, you put it into a, a reactor and, you know, you experience it, you know, you expose it to a, a neutron flux that is going to be representative, at least we hope of what it's going to experience in the commercial reactor, we don't have an operating fast reactor in the, U- in the West. Outside of Russia and China, there isn't any operating fast reactor. There's hypothetically maybe one in Japan that hasn't been turned on in years. And just that sort of basic, you know, sort of testing ability, we don't have. So I'm asking us, we should be developing a, a very, very robust fast reactor development program or non-light water reactor because they are so important and because they have such a, they have a lot of advantages over light water reactors. But I think we should be clear about what these are going to be. These are likely not going to, we're not going to turn one of these things on and it's just going to be, you know, 90% rock solid generation like we expect out of the LWR fleet. It's going to require some learning by doing in order to get to that expected, um, uh, uh, reliability. And we're just not, we're not taking the steps necessary to ensure that, that we actually get there. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting going back well beyond nuclear to the beginning of the industrial revolution. I mean, our, uh, expertise at managing water under high pressure and using steam. I mean, this is hundreds of years old, uh, versus, versus these more modern technologies. So it's not that the learning curve just began in the fifties and sixties. It, it has a you know, far, far longer, uh, track record. Um, so I, I do want to talk um, about, you know, getting from the lab bench to commercial operations. And I think you've talked a little bit about that from the operational side and you're hinting at it in terms of, you know, what's required to qualify fuel, et cetera. But before we get there, um, you know, I guess so much of the energy debate, the nuclear debate is um, when we when we step back from it, especially non-experts like myself, it's bound in a lot of sort of aesthetic and, and psychological considerations and framings. And so I'm particularly interested in, again, the role of venture capital finance in some of the sort of uh, paper reactor, uh, advanced reactor type concepts um, and sort of what's driving some of the thoughts here. And when I look at it, um, you know, I see folks that have made a lot of money in tech um, in a highly disruptive um, industry. Um, And, you know, maybe they've made their millions They're maybe interested in making their millions or billions more, but they start to turn to these kind of broader uh, existential problems facing humanity, maybe it's climate, and they discover nuclear and they see how incredibly awesome it is. And I truly mean that in the word awe, awe-inspiring, the alchemy, the, the strong atomic force, the incredible energy density, et cetera. 
and they're incredibly frustrated frustrated with the glacial pace of innovation um, and think, hey, if I can disrupt this, A, I could solve this problem. Maybe I could make a pile of cash on the side. But, you know, I, th- I think there's this, um, you know, incredible sort of frustration and all these dumb nuclear engineers, they're, they're, they're messing around with the wrong technology. You know, we... We proved that molten salts work in, you know, in Tennessee or, you know, EBR proves that, you know, just let's get on with it. Um, so yeah, nothing uh, happened at EBR one. That was a problem. Anyway, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so maybe maybe riff off of riff off of that and what you've observed um, in that space. Let me start with a story. Right. You know, I, I have been a lover of uh, nuclear power since I was like, you know, seven or six years old. And I still have the boy like wonder. Uh, with with this technology, it is m- seemingly like anything else in the world that you put a pile, a, a bunch of metal rods in a tank of water, and that tank of water will just boil endlessly for years. That is something like like it's like a Harry Potter or something. It is it is magic in in the sense that the technology that we are doing u- utilizing in this entire field is the first time that man has captured the strong nuclear force and has been able to put it toward you know sort of tame it and put it towards productive use the strongest force in the universe and that's why you know the the biography of people like Oppenheimer was called American Prometheus it's literally we took the strong nuclear force and the nuclear engineers sort of stole it from the gods and sometimes it is easy in that magic to forget that a lot of this technology is to actually tame that magic is one something that's really really challenging and that it's still really really new in the history of humanity right it's only you know december 2nd 1942 was the time that we had the first self-sustained chain reaction probably on planet earth um since billions of years since you know oklo since the natural nuclear reactors so it is now, if you now take that from where we are with tech, right, you have a bunch of people in Silicon Valley, as you said, who are, are in a field that is innovating really, really quickly, that has dr- dramatic disruptive change on a couple of year long basis. And they look at nuclear power. And I actually one time was at a cocktail party in, in, uh, in Silicon Valley. I think I've told you this story before where, you know, you would talk to these Silicon Valley guys and they would just be like, you guys are literally using technology from 1953, basically, which is the light water reactor technology. I, I didn't want to hint to them that, you know, molten salt reactors and, and sodium reactors are also that old. But their, their idea is, hey, this technology is so old, it has not been disrupted, you know, really in any, you know, in their mind, at least, in any meaningful way for so long that there's got to be a better solution than this. And therefore, they want to take that sort of Silicon Valley ethos, which so much of it is predicated in software development, where development it can really happen iteratively, very, very quickly, very disruptively, and they want to apply it to nuclear engineering. The problem is, is that they're taking a software mentality to the hardest of hard tech, which is nuclear power, right? And the problem is, is as I was explaining, just the chemistry alone of these issues is very, very complicated and something that is very hard to understand 
um, without actually building and operating the reactor in the real world. It is not like running, you know, a new, you know, Python compiler or writing a new set of uh, of code or, or jumping from, you know, from Fortran to Julia or something. This is something that really requires actual real world build experience and understanding the challenges that happen. And it's what Rickover talked about in the early 50s. That's why it's been since the early 50s in his paper reactor memo that always a reactor on paper is going to be much better than a real world reactor. And the simple reason is, is that the engineers cannot, cannot foresee the, all of the challenges that are going to be associated with building a nuclear power plant in real life. Because these challenges are so difficult to actually model completely on paper versus in real world. And that's why it's not like the engineers at General Atomics who put that Fort St. Vrain reactor together. They weren't aiming for 15%, you know, capacity factor. They experienced challenges that they just did not know how to anticipate. And we've seen this throughout. Uh, the nuclear development you know, space in every reactor technology, whether it's light water reactors, whether it's sodium reactors, um, whether that's, you know, look at even the company, the countries that are developing these non-light water reactor technologies, even the Soviet Union slash Russia, which has been developing commercially sodium fast breeder reactors since the late 60s and deploying them, by the way, first at Shevchenko and then at Belayarsk, right? They are not, deploying right now as their main technology, the liquid sodium fast breeder reactors, their main bread and butter reactor that they're building the most of are these light water reactors. Is that because light water reactors on paper are superior to liquid sodium fast breeder? No, they aren't, but they have the real world experience in both engineering design and constructability that gives it an edge. And what I see is a very different picture than maybe a Silicon Valley person does about the 50 years of using the same technology. What I see here is that we have 50 years of tech that has been built up by operating these plants that allows us, it's sort of the key to unlock that strong force and be able to turn it into useful work in an economical, reliable way. What I see is, is that it is amazing that we take a, the same plants that 40 years ago in the United States, weren't breaking 50% capacity factor records, and now we're operating at 93%. That is technology, and that is innovation that has happened. It is just simply not maybe innovation in the nuclear steam supply system, but it rather is innovation in operations, in sort of fuel design and fabrication, and in the basic sort of real world experience of how do I actually operate this plant on a day-to-day -day basis. That's a huge technological asset. And when we sort of change the fuel, change the coolant, change everything else, we start breaking down and losing the tech that we have developed by operating these plants and are starting from more of a sort of blank slate. And that's, that will maybe have advantages, but we have to be very careful to understand that we're going to have to build that other real-world operational tech up you know, if we're going to expect these plants to operate at a comparable capacity factor in economics. I mean, this is reminding me a little bit in terms of, you know, the category errors we're talking about, which are just, you know, we're so prone to making as human beings, um, you know, and, and talking about maybe the inertia of traditional technologies. I'm thinking about Vaslav Smil here and describing the prime movers yeah. that we rely upon and how old they are, how old the diesel engine is, how old even the jet turbine is. 
Um, and these are technologies which are miraculous and have had iterative improvements um, and you know in increased efficiencies and things like that, but they're not fundamentally different. And indeed, we haven't really discovered a new prime mover. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I think in the last 70 years. Um, so there, there is, you know, to someone who's looking to disrupt and for, for, you know, miraculously novel technology that's going to reduce costs or schedule by orders of magnitude, nuclear, I think, like those other prime movers is going to end up being pretty frustrating. Yeah. You know, I think a, a really good example of this to give you your industrial revolution example is, you know, we always like to think of nuclear power as the new fire. And it is right. As I said, it's like this, it's not doing the chemical interactions that underlie combustion. It's rather using strong interactions and, and the strong force to, to generate power. And so if you just take that metaphor out a little bit, so, you know, in we have, as you said, in, in the industrial revolution, we had a lot of fire, right? Based combustion based processes. So first with a steam engine and, and then, and then so on, but you would never think if you built a steam engine, Right. And you had a lot of experience building steam engines that you're just going to trivially be able to build an internal combustion engine. But you're like, hey, these still both use fire. Right. They're both using combustion to basically run the plant. That's sort of like I like to make the analogy between a, uh, a light water reactor and, say, a molten salt reactor. They're both using the same fire, that is nuclear fission. But the way they actually convert that into useful work that is used for an end use is very, very different. All the underlying engineering challenges are very different. And just as you would not expect to be able to just master building steam engines that you're going to be able to simply switch over to build combustion, you know, gas turbines or an internal combustion engine, we should sort of take it that the same way, that these are going to be challenges. It doesn't mean, by the way, that the that just because we had really good steam engines in the 1880s, we shouldn't have tried to build internal combustion engines. We should. We should still try to build gas turbines, of course, just like we should still be trying to build these generation four tech. It's just that we need to be careful, I think, in understanding the relative levels of technological maturity that these different technologies have. I mean, I, I think it's interesting, and I make this argument in relation to commercial fusion. It's it's insane that we went from the Fermi pile in 42 to shipping port 14 years later in 56. Um, like, is that just a testament to the times we were in when the brightest minds? You know, I, I think there's generationally, there's sort of the age of chemistry, the age of physics, the age of biotechnology. Like, we've been pursuing through these sort of scientific peaks of interest, and it's brought the brightest minds in, like, how can this be so sluggish when, again, we move from the Fermi pile to, to commercial nuclear power in just 14 years? There's a couple of things going on. One, as you said, you know, if you think about think about these reactors, right? So we have the Fermi pile, CP1, Chicago pile one. We have, um, you know, EBR1 in Idaho. We have uh, submarine, you know, the, the, therm the sort of predecessor of the Nautilus uh, pressurized water reactor being built in Idaho. We have Borax1 being built in Idaho. Right. And what do these all actually have in common? Well, in many cases, all of these reactors, which were experimental reactors, were built by the same te teams of people or involved the same team of people. Think of a guy like Walter Zinn. Right. So Walter Zinn, of course, right, uh, was at City College of New York in the 1930s as a physics professor. He, you know, Fermi comes up to Columbia, which, you know, down the block, and he starts working with Fermi and is Fermi's right hand man in engineering. Uh, CP1, Chicago Pile 1. And then Walter Zinn, right, then goes out of the Manhattan Project, leaves the Manhattan Project, becomes head of Argonne National Lab. And at Argonne National Lab, Zinn is, is responsible for literally heading up 
EBR1, you know, it was called Zin's Infernal Pile, right? The Zip, right? Then he was also in responsible for helping build out at Idaho and got into massive fights with Rickover, but was literally on the team that was building the first pressurized water reactor and supervised the first building of the um, of the first borax experiments, the first boiling water reactor. So not only did you have, in some cases, like a totally different governmental uh, sort of uh, idea, you know, support for building these experimental reactors, you had literally the same groups of people and the same teams and the same real world experience on how we're going to organize organize laboratory teams to be building these new reactor types. And you would just have the same people like, you know, these grandfathers like Walter Zinn, who are just birthing new reactor types over and over again. And and I want to go the one one more step. We, we, we're, we're forgetting that every single one of these reactors came out of government research and development labs. And they weren't immediately tried. You know, no one tried to make the first boiling water reactor a commercial product immediately. Right? We built Borax 1 through 5, right? We built those test reactors. EBR1, then we built EBR2. We even tried to go right from EBR1 and EBR2 right to a commercial plant that was Fermi unit number one uh, outside of Detroit. And that's a pretty disastrous operational experience. We almost right? lost Detroit. Jumping. Well, not really, but yes. <laughs> we, had, we, had, we had a core damage event at, at Fermi 1, and, and Fermi 1 was incredibly unreliable as, as a plant. What I'm not trying to say is that means that sodium Sodium reactors will never be commercialized. No. What I'm trying to say is if we have to distinguish between a science experiment and, and technology that we need to learn and master versus a commercially deployable tech that has to compete against other power sources on an open market. And this is, this is not really, by the way. So if you want to go back to where you started this question, why did Great British Nuclear choose the light water reactor SMR tech? I think a lot of this has to do with exactly what we're talking about. The maturity of the SMR tech, whether it's the fuel, whether it's the operational experience of how you operate a boiling water reactor or a pressurized water reactor, that's not that far removed from the existing fleet's knowledge. And one of the things that I will say about this fascinating to me for the United Kingdom, for the great British people, right, um, is they rather uniquely right now have a nuclear fleet that almost all but one operating plant is not a light water reactor, right? They have one light water reactor, size well B, but every single other reactor that they are operating is an advanced gas reactor, a high temperature graphite moderated gas cooled reactor. And they are not going to the next generation of gas cooled reactors. They are jumping back to light water reactors because the experience of the AGRs, while it's been not terrible by any stretch of the imagination, the capacity factor of the current AGR fleet is still not matching the capacity factors that we expect out of the light water reactor fleet. And even though we have all those uh, advantages, you know, including higher temperatures, the, the Brits are saying basically, hey, man, we're going to go back to the light water reactor because we expect that to give us better operational excellence than we've gotten out of two generations. First, the, you know, the AGR, but before that, the Magnox reactors of the high temperature gas cooled reactors. So I think that's kind of demonstrating the real value of the tech that exists in light water reactors, which is this half a century at this point of operational experience at commercial scale. I think, you know, part of the reason I care so much about this, particularly in a debate 
which tends towards uh, conflict avoidance and all of the aboveism. And listen, there's so many gigawatts we need to build. Let's just do a smattering of everything, whether it's renewables plus nuclear, even within the nuclear space, is this idea that like we desperately need a win. And another loss is is potentially hugely damaging. A discoordinated approach is damaging. Um, you know, a non-standardized approach, not learning from the lessons, the successful lessons of of contemporary and and past nuclear buildouts. Um, you know, something that drives me crazy in Canada is you know, in a province of I think eight hundred thousand people out of New Brunswick, not one but two. Um, again, back to the future reactors or Gen four reactors are in some stage of planning. Um, and again, this is a province that runs a single Kandu uh, six unit. They run it terribly, unfortunately. Um, sorry to my <laughs> Point Le Pro listeners. You know, I, I really hope that things can improve there. But that this is going to be some center of miraculous innovation when the French program at, at its height with Super Phoenix fizzled. Um, the Japanese program with Manju fizzled. Um, you know, massive state-backed enterprises that two you know, tech startup companies are going to be able to get it right, get it operating, get it economical. Um, just seems so fanciful that I wonder why it's still being taken seriously. So I, I want to, it's a really interesting question, right? And I agree with you. In my mind, what the US nuclear, what the world nuclear industry, and maybe outside of Russia and China, let's put it this way, what we really need right now, as you said, is a win. And the, the, the question is, is what path do we take to get that win? And I think all of us are sort of realizing if we can get a couple wins under our belt, then this, this world of the hundreds of gigawatts that we need to meet suddenly becomes realistic that we're actually going to be able to start building that. And I think there's a lot of people who think that throwing away the old tech and starting on something newer, quote unquote, simpler, uh, smaller is the way to do it. And I, and I realize that this is a, a controversial perspective. Uh, I believe that actually the, the most likely chance we have for a win is using the stuff that we've already done, that we have all of the build experience in, that maybe it wasn't a great build experience, but we've done it, we've gone through it, and we've got the plant operating now. And most importantly, in some ways, when we turn that plant on, forget about the build experience, which is it's going to actually reliably generate power and be able to service the debt that it accrued to basically build that plant. And that's really, really important. And you brought up Super Phoenix, right? Which for, for listeners who don't know, was a French breeder reactor, a big 1300 megawatts electrical breeder reactor, huge in France that was built, started in the 70s and was finished in the 80s. And, you know, the French at this time were really, you know, building a lot of nuclear. They had a very, very established uh, you know, nuclear supply suppliers and industrial capacity. They had a great educational system that was minting new nuclear engineers. And what happened in Super Phoenix is in some ways exactly what we would expect, but it turned out to be a disaster for it. What happened is when they first turned on Super Phoenix, right, it had months and months of outages, right? In 1986, when, when we first connected Super Phoenix to the grid, right, it really had a capacity factor that was extremely, extremely low, right? I believe below 30%. And we had major, major operational outages that were caused by, you know, leaks in the intermediate heat exchangers, right? We had oxidation of the primary sodium. We had cracks on the external fuel storage drum. That basically was what you you know, took the fuel assembly after you you defuel it into. And this caused huge amounts of outages, right? The plant wasn't 
uh, operational for literally a decade, right? In any true sense, it was going on and off, but, and also in a famous incident, the turbine building literally collapsed due to a heavy snowfall, which I, I'm not so sure you could blame that on, 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 on a, big, a, a react, a new gen, you know, sodium reactor. But anyway, what this gave was huge amounts of opportunities for opponents of the breeder reactor program, even in a relatively pro-nuclear country like France, to basically say this is in, 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 in you know, a, just a money sink, an absolute abject debacle over and over and over again. And so even by the time that they had really likely, you know, hammered out a lot of those kinks by the mid-1990s, and we actually had a, a run that was relatively at a relatively high availability, maybe even above 90%, the political opposition to this was so great that they killed the entire program. And Super Phoenix was retired in 96 and, and never really generated very much power at all. And what I worry about, what the lesson of Super Phoenix to me is not that, once again, we shouldn't try to build sodium fast breeder reactors, but we should manage expectations and we should be clear that these experiments, we should not expect when we first turn on these new technologies that they're going to really, really uh, perform like the light water reactor fleet does. And what I worry about is that we are not developing that infrastructure right now, right? If you look at the budget of what, just in the 1960s, the Atomic Energy Commission was just spending on new reactor development. We were spending in inflation-adjusted terms by 63, 64, even past the peak of new reactor development, four U.S. billion dollars a year on just developing new reactor technologies at the AEC, right, and pioneering them and building them out in Idaho, right? Right now, the entire that is larger than the entire budget of the Office of Nuclear Energy and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission combined. Forget about what we're spending on new nuclear reactors. So when we're talking about building a new technology like this that does not have that operational experience, I would question to my venture capital friends, it's great that you're putting that money in. It really is. But how are you going to get through? Let's imagine you even get to the point where you're building the reactor. How are we going to get through commercially? As a private investor, how are you going to justify to the investors that maybe put the money in to build that plant? You know, that couple year period where we're not going to expect the plant to work so great. And that is my concern right now. It is not, once again, that we do not need these reactors. We do need these reactors. We do need disruptive startups going through. But how are we going to actually do this on a full private model without government support when it's going to be very hard to get these reactors, you know, to be generating a lot of power, likely, we don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, and we're going to turn them on, and they're just going to be perfect out of the box. But I, I don't think that has ever happened before. I think just because there's, there's so much hype about, you know, liquid thorium and molten salt reactors that we kind of have to go there a little bit. Um, we've been talking a bit about the sodium uh, uh, moderated reactors uh, in, in in France. Cooled. And, they're, they're not moderated. Sorry, fast cooled. reactors, right? Yeah. Oh my god, I knew I knew I had my foot. Well, there are so there are sodium thermal. There are moderate like halum like that are graphite moderated sodium cooled. So yeah. Anyway, sorry. My bad, my bad. Uh, but I do appreciate the correction. Um, yeah. So in in terms of the molten salt uh, program, again, I, I think one of the smartest anti nukes uh, that I've come across, MB Ramana. He he does a lot of uh, pushback. Um, on on SMRs and on on molten salts in particular, but one of the points that he mentioned, and I think it's a fair point, is is similar to this theme we're discussing. Um, you know, this is referenced as a hey, we've done it before. Why aren't we just doing it now? Um, you know, 225 outages, only 58 were planned. 
Um, you know, this is not mature technology and I think, you know, belongs in a national lab to keep working out the kinks and scaling up and scaling up slowly before jumping to, you know, 300 megawatts, gigawatts uh, scale. I don't think anyone's talking about a gigawatt scale molten salt reactor, but um, could you talk a little bit more about that experiment um, and maybe temper some of the expectations while preserving um, some of the excitement about, you know, the end place of where this technology could belong? So for molten salt reactors, so just so for people who don't know, what the, the, an idea of a molten salt reactor, and I'm going to be talking here not about, you know, like a Kairos-like design where like you have solid fuel, but a molten salt coolant, but I'm going to talk about, you know, a molten salt with a liquid fuel, right? So what that basically means is that unlike a, a nuclear, like a classical light water reactor, even, you know, a fast reactor where the, the fuel is solid, right? It's either uranium dioxide or metallic uranium or triso. Uh, you know, sort of pellets. Instead, in a, in, a in a molten salt reactor, what we do is we put the fuel in solution as a salt with the coolant. And there's been two examples, really, of this, right? Which, uh, as you mentioned, one was the molten salt reactor experiment at Oak Ridge. And another one before that, actually, was also at Oak Ridge National Laboratory called the Aircraft Reactor Experiment, or the ARE. And the Aircraft, aircraft Reactor Experiment was a 2.5 megawatts, uh, you know, full power reactor uh, built in 1954, went critical in 1954, and it was moderated. Um, and here's the problem with that. You remember how I was talking about, or not the problem, right? Once again, I am not anti-molten salt reactors, but let's just go back and actually look at the operational experience of these reactors. Remember when I was talking about before that what's, you know, it's sort of like, you know, Dmitry Mendeleev, you know, eat your heart out. A nuclear fuel rod is like, we're like generating all these different chemical compounds constantly as fission products or as, you know, decay chain intermediates from those fission products as we go down the decay chains. So you literally have dozens and dozens of chemical elements uh, going on. Now, in a uranium dioxide fuel pellet, generally those are in a solid, you know, crystal lattice of some sort that's basically keeping the, the sort of different compounds kind of all kind of fixed together in a solid. They're not sort of messing around and interacting with each other. With a molten salt reactor, as just an example, what we're doing here is we're taking that, that all those fission products, all those decay chain intermediaries, and we're putting them into liquid, so in the liquid fuel, and they're all interacting with each other, which means that the chemistry becomes non-trivial non very, very rapidly. And, and as, as one friend one time said, this is the most exotic chemistry that has ever existed on planet Earth in some ways. So if we look at the the you know, and we've only built, to my knowledge, only two molten salt reactors that I just named actually ever went critical um, and actually turned on. Um, and one of the more interesting things, in addition to, and, you know, the molten, the aircraft reactor experiment was 2.5 megawatts thermal, right? And it only, the total run generation was 96 megawatt hours um, of energy complete. So if you just do that math, that means on a full-time adjusted basis, right, the plant was literally running for an equivalent of 38.4 hours at full power. Now, it was actually running for a lot longer at lower power, but um, that gives you how little of a experience that we actually have operating these plants. And then in the molten salt reactor experiment, as, as you mentioned – Right. The full power outlet output equivalent was still was much longer. Right. We had about nine thousand six hours of full power output equivalent on the first run um, and uh, about two thousand five hundred and forty nine hours on the second run. Um, but still, in total, we are looking at less than two reactor years of total 
um, you know, uh, full, full power equivalents and just these two small test reactors. And what I would, I would give you, just to give you an, an exact example of what I'm talking about, these unforeseen challenges. When we looked at, the, at what happened here with the molten salt reactor experiment, when we turned it off and, you know, it turned out the decommissioning of that plant was not easy, um, uh, but it, was, it is done, uh, to my, my understanding. One of the things that we found was some, a, a form of corrosion called intergranular cracking. And it turned out that it which causes embrittlements in the metal services that were exposed to this fuel salt. And it turned out that the culprit of this embrittlement was an element called tellurium. Now, tellurium, for those who don't know, it's atomic number 52, right? It's a really rare element. It's about as rare on Earth as uh, platinum is. And it's something that we don't really know that much of the chemistry of because it doesn't really have that much interactions. We don't, you know, use it very much. There's some niche applications. Well, we make tellurium in this sort of nuclear fission alchemel, you know, alchemy soup that is the product of, you know, driving fission products. And it turned out this tellurium interacted with components of the piping in the, the molten salt reactor and caused severe, you know, embrittlement over the entire, entire reactor, uh, you know, exposures. Now, what is the lesson that I'm trying to get out of it? It's not that we can't solve tellurium-induced intergranular cracking. It's that this was a completely unexpected, you know, complication of the reactor design that no one at the drawing stage or at the planning stage ever anticipated. And it could have been a very, very severe operational challenge if we tried to bring that reactor commercially. This is, and this is, of course, why we have national laboratories. This is why we run science experiments, is to figure out what these real-world challenges are. No one would have ever anticipated that tellurium was going to cause intergranular cracking in the particular alloy that was used in this piping, but it did. And that's the exact example that I like to give of real-world challenges that you don't necessarily stumble upon until you operate the plant. And it's just not true that we've had that much operating experiences with molten salt reactors. There's two examples of this, right? two reactors that have gone critical. I think the Chinese are building one more. It's not clear if it's ever gone critical. And why are we saying that this is just going to turn on and just be a complete you know, walk in the park. And I'm sure I'm about to get a huge amount of hate about this episode. I have to say, I am just bracing myself for the hatred that's about to happen. But what I'm trying to say is I'm not trying to be a party pooper. I'm just trying to say, let's set ourselves up for success. And that means being reasonable and realistic about what the challenges we are going to face with, with really new advanced reactor technology. I mean, I guess for, you know, it, we just finished uh, last week our, our episode with the Jacopo Bongiorno about uh, the cost of nuclear based on the excellent MIT report. Um, and what he was saying, at least in their in their study and their modeling, is that, you know, 20% of the overnight build cost is in the nuclear steam supply system or whatever you're, I'm not sure if they were looking at advanced, uh, advanced reactor concepts. Um, but in any case, a, a vast amount of the, um, the cost is in construction, I guess, Charitably, people making arguments for um, the rapid deployment of, of uh, Gen 4 technologies and molten salts, for instance, say, hey, it doesn't require all of, you know, as much civil engineering because it's not a high pressure system. Um, what do you think about some of those arguments? Because because otherwise, I think we're stuck with trying to attract VC money to some really boring stuff, which is like, let's, you know, generate um, 
you know, incredibly uh, excellent institutions um, and incredibly well-trained people that take, you know, 20 years to, to get up to snuff. Like that's not something that's like a VC deliverable, I feel, or something that that's sexy um, or let's develop better steel bricks. I don't know what some kind of revolution or disruptive construction experience. And I think, you know, Jacopo's report also looked at like the productivity within a variety of sectors and just how, you know, construction has flatlined or gone negative com- compared to sort of manufacturing processes. I'm getting too broad here, but um uh, reflections on on uh, that that scrambled egg soup of a question. So there's there's three things going on here, I think, and we should do a couple of them. So the first is on the civil engineering bills, in particular, you know, concrete, reinforced concrete, and that sort of issues. In addition to improvement, excuse me. So the pressure thing, right, is generally what we can associate that in the first, you know, if you first think, excuse me. And the first thing what we think about is, well, the well, you know, when you're building a nuclear steam supply system for on a light water reactor, we're operating at thousands of pounds per square inch in order to maintain the reactor, you know, the reactor coolant system at at the at a high enough pressure that we, you know, get to the, you know, we get above 100 degrees Celsius for the boiling point of water, right? And you need that obviously for the thermal efficiency of the plant, among many other things. So it really does require a huge amount of welding and 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 very very you know thick piping and and it's it's not trivial by any and even you know things like you know, the, the sealing of the reactor coolant pumps all of a sudden is not a particularly easy thing to do, but we've, we've mastered it. Um, and so, but that would be, as you just said, as, as Jacopo said, it's, that's, you know, 20 to 25%, you know, 18% sometimes, depending on what model of the actual NSSS costs, actually of the actual power plant costs is actually the NSSS. One of the hypothetical advantages that you can get out of, out of having a much lower pressure system is that say, for example, the the, the design of the containment building needs to be much less, or sometimes you don't even need a containment if you're in a really advanced, you can have what's called a functional containment, depending on your fuel types, if you're using something like Trizo, right? You can maybe eliminate a lot or really reduce the price of, of the containment building, which is a major cost driver and a major cost of that civil works if you really improve that. That's definitely true. Um, I think it, it varies from technology to technology in Gen 4, but, you know, it, it is true. Um, and, and that's why, I, once again, I'm not anti-Gen 4 technologies by any stretch of the imagination. But what I want to sort of turn back on you, though, is ask you the question about uh, what Jacopo said about, about, you know, the cost drivers. And now let's go back to the light water reactor SMRs that we are building. Well, one of the things that was really, really interesting is if you look at, you know, the historical drivers of the low productivity in Western construction uh, you know, which is hypothetically what these plants are designed to address, right? One of the problems that we've had in, in new nuclear builds is that just construction productivity has been very, very low, especially compared to manufacturing productivity. Well, one of the things that's really interesting is you actually look at the data and say, well, okay, let's actually now compute on a megawatt basis how much labor that you're going to need uh, per megawatt hour, direct labor. So like ignoring QA, QC, management, but just actually like craft labor and manual labor is building the plant. And then you do this math and this really good peer-reviewed data actually from MIT, from Robbie Stewart and Karish Shervan and Jeremy Gregory, right, who really actually analyzed this in a very, very rigorous, you know, sort of publication and got it published in Nuclear Engineering and Design in 2022. What they found was, for example, for a BWRX 300, Right, compared to an AP1000, you need for the BWRX300 two thirds 
more man hour, people hours, human hours, labor hours of direct labor per megawatt electrical than you would for an AP1000. So here's an example of where I'm worried a little bit, right? We know for a fact that, you know, craft labor and manual labor productivity has been low. The input amount that we really need is going to be a very cost-determinative thing, as, as Jacopo was talking about, because, you know, that is the major driver in many ways of, of construction cost, is the actual, you know, getting the workforce out there, getting enough people and so on. And we are choosing designs that per megawatt electrical are requiring a lot more labor, at least on paper, than, than the larger reactors that we've had uh, in the past. And what, I, what worries me about this is, is that this is a perfect example of why you generally try not to solve uh, financial problems with nuclear engineering solutions. Because each time you try to solve one problem by changing the nuclear engineering completely, we introduce a whole new set of new challenges. And what I would just like us to think about is let's look at the real underlying causes of cost escalation and try to address them. And I'm not so sure. I'm not convinced that doing this with, you know, increasing the amount of labor hours, direct labor labor hours per unit megawatt is the right direction for our field, given the challenges that we have associated, uh, that we've had historically. And, and that's what I'm, I'm just trying to put that out there. I love the BWX 300. I'm very excited it's getting built. I'm not trying to say we shouldn't try to build it. I'm just trying to say we should be looking at the cost and benefits that we have of these new solutions and, and realizing that sometimes it's not all better always. A couple of thoughts there, I guess. I mean, one is, um, you know, these, these, you know, labor hours, absolute versus relative. And I mean, you know, on an absolute basis in terms of getting that, not on a megawatt hour basis, but just in terms of getting that project done, there'll be less labor hours and it'll, it'll come on earlier. Another argument you hear is that, well, the SMRs will start producing uh, electricity earlier than, than a large build and therefore um, be more financeable and ultimately be able to pay back a bit quicker. Um, I think uh, there's a really absurd example of this, which is with new scale, where you need to build an absolutely enormous uh, civil engineering project and civil works to, you know, and you're starting to pay that off only, you know, 77 megawatts at a time as you get these units in. That almost seems to work counter to that argument. But do, do you do you have any sympathy to to that that idea that, you know, you'll get operating quicker and be able to pay back your debts quicker and that'll kind of make up for the difference? I hope that's true. And I think it, it probably will be true. But the thing that I don't understand about this is we have built in modern times, modern large light water reactor designs very quickly. Right. And I'm just, you know, going to go, you can, people who know me know exactly the example I'm going to give. Look at the advanced boiling water reactor builds in Japan. Right. We were building those on the order of, you know, 36 to 48 months. Right. From first nuclear concrete to commercial operation. Right. And the only difference is, is that we got 1.25 gigawatt electrical out of that or no more, uh, a little bit more, 1.3 gigawatt electrical. Uh, um you know, out of each reactor built rather than, you know, 200 or 300 or 50 or 75. So, yes, I think that it is a good thing to go faster in building the smaller plants. However, I am not convinced that that is an intrinsic advantage of smaller plants because we have obviously built, and many times over, large light water reactors 
as quickly. And I think in a world in which we can build small modular reactors fast and we can build large modular reactors fast, the large modular reactor wins. And I think that is the challenge. What we need to be figuring out right now is, well, how do we build the large amount? How do we replicate what the Japanese did in the 90s and in the 2000s, right? Which is not that long ago. This is not 1970 whatever, right? This is literally, you know, I was alive for these things. I mean, very young. But um, but I was in middle school by the time the, the, the last ones were really being done. This can be done. And I think the question, the, the question I would like to ask you is, do you think it's more likely that we're going to be able to build a first-of-a-kind small modular reactor uh, faster than if we try to really figure out how to take a large Generation 3 reactor that we've already built and already operated and already had a running supply chain, already had a regulator. If we really tried on doing that, which one do you think would be a higher probability of being faster? And my money would be that we could do better by bet, by betting on something that we've already built, we've already gone through those kinks, and now we just need to input, you know, institutionalize that learning and put it down uh, to go faster. And the the second thing I just want to be on uh, honest about, be clear about, is is that yes, it's really great to get a power plant on very fast, but ultimately that power plant has to be able to be competitive over forty or sixty or eighty years. And that is ultimate, if we're building plants very fast, but they're going to be very, very, or much more expensive relatively, I think there's a trade-off here that we have to figure out. And I, I'm not so sure we're paying enough attention to that trade-off that we're, we're getting. So I guess moving, moving towards closing here, um, you know, the, the biggest question, um, and maybe a bit of an unanswerable one, but I'm interested in your thoughts about this, because we've been doing a lot of, um, I guess, sort of diagnosis and, and working our way through the problem. Thinking about solutions, um, you know, particularly when it comes to uh, finding finance, keeping the interest of VC, VC finance as we also try and uh, have a more organized, uh, perhaps uh, informed uh, direction coming from from the state as well. Um, how, how do we how do we get there in terms of the kind of the, the solutions that you're sympathetic to? Um, what would that look like in terms of um, the uh, not 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 the nuclear engineering um, solution to some of the problems we're discussing, but this question of of you know if we if we're talking about building large again, if we want to try and build another AP one thousand again, and it's not going to happen um, through the loan program office or something that's more top down or, or vertically integrated, is there any kind of novel way in which to organize that or build you know focus focus on that question of of constructability of institutional excellence? Like how is that possible in the West or within the U.S. in particular? So I, I, I am, um, there's two, three things I want to say, right? The first is, you know, I know I've, I've sounded a little bit like a downer. That is not about generation four and advanced reactors and even SMRs. That is not at all my intent, right? Um, I believe that SMRs are vital and that they will play a vital role in decarbonization. I also think that Gen 4 advanced reactor technologies are going to play a vital role as well. And to go to your question, what are the solutions to maybe some of the challenges that we've been talking about in that space? Let's start there. And I think a perfect example of this is we need to see better advocacy for things that Generation 4, particularly in the fast neutron spectra, what they need, right, Um, in order to qualify their plants. And, you know, one of the answers I have for all of this is, you know, Idaho. I mean, it's Idaho, baby. It's not just potatoes. Like, like so much of the modern reactors, technologies that we talk about today came from Idaho, came from what is now Idaho National Labs, was the reactor test station. And we really do need to bring back the idea 
of what we are talking about when we're talking about building advanced reactors. You know, building prototypes up at Idaho is a really, really important thing. And, I, and, and that is going to lead the pathway, in my mind, to effective commercialization. Because you don't have the anticipation when you're building a government reactor experiment, that reactor is going to be as reliable as a commercial plant. And we already are seeing some of the, the really smart, really great, you know, new reactor startups like Allo Atomics, Right, what they're basing it on is they're basing on the Marvel reactor. And the Marvel reactor is a test reactor that is being built at Idaho National Labs. Um, and that way they will get that real world experience on a test reactor and be able to translate it into a commercial product, hopefully. But they're not anticipating that the first of a kind reactor, they're not going to have any operational you know, uh, challenges that we're going to solve right out of the back on the commercial private market. The other thing is, is just increasing the budget of Idaho and getting congressional support in the U.S., for example, for something like a fast neutron test reactor. You know, there was a proposal that both the Trump and Biden administrations have been behind, which is something called the Versatile Test Reactor, which is going to be a small version of the PRISM reactor that was going to basically be built at Idaho to basically have that fast neutron irradiation capability and test reactor capability that does not exist currently in the Western world. And if we're really going to be serious about building these fast reactors, that's a bare minimum. We really do need test reactors that can actually, you know, uh, irradiate, say, fuel samples at a spectra that is, you know, somewhat comparable to what we would expect the commercial plant to be operating at. So I think that's a really, really important just sort of bare bones. Let's set the table for having a successful advanced reactor market and, and development. And that does mean, I think, a little bit more advocacy, especially as nuclear advocates become more numerous in number, pro-nuclear advocates, and more sophisticated. Let's try to build more you know, advanced reactor experiments and build test reactors that really can pave the way for effective commercialization and commercialization that is likely to um, really pave the way for a commercially viable and successful project uh, product. The, the second question that you ask um, is that um, how do we do, do, deal with a large light water reactor problem? So I think there are a lot of policy issues. I mean, that could be a whole nother episode that we talk about. But one thing that I would love to just say at the bare beyonds is I think we have to have a little bit more of a data-driven discussion about SMRs and about what we're expecting out of them, where where it makes sense to deploy them, and where there's some questions about whether they deploy them. You know, right now in the United States, there are gigawatts and gigawatts of new, you know, large Generation 3 reactors that have full licenses, new, that could start building from an NRC perspective tomorrow. And, you know, I, I am not necessarily the most critical person of the NRC, but, you know, going through the NRC combined construction and operating license process is way too long, is a huge burden on everyone. Right now we have gigawatts of plant at places like Turkey Point outside Miami, where we have two new licensed AP1000s that if we decided on and advocated for, we could start building tomorrow. The NRC has granted a COL that is active and operational. And we should be thinking about these opportunities that we have to be building new plants right now and just advocating and talking about it more and talking about the advantages of it and having the difficult discussion 
that we need to have about what happened at Vogel, what happened at Summer, and and actually have that conversation in a real objective way, not in a way that is, oh, it's the NRC's fault, it was, you know, everyone else under the sun. No, 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 a real root cause analysis about what happened at Vogel and how will it not happen again. And in my humble opinion, when I've looked at this problem, I've spent months and months and months looking at what happened at Vogel. What I take away from that is, yes, Vogel was kind of a little bit of a disaster, but my general takeaway is that all the challenges that we we faced would be unlikely, in some cases impossible, to happen again. And that is something that I wish that we talked a little bit more about. We dealt with the PR challenges, let's call them that, of Vogel and Summer, not by a nuclear engineering solution, but regular old PR Right. Let's talk about explain what happened, level with people, take responsibility, but also explain to people why this will be different, especially when we have so many sites that the NRC has already given license, a full license to be in constructing and operating those reactor designs and where we have you know reactors being ordered in Poland to uh, that exact type. And we have the real world labor experience. Let's try to sell that a little bit try to talk about it with pride and understand that that it's not and not every solution is going to be solved by a nuclear engineering problem. Is that a cop out or do you uh do you uh I mean I, th- I, th- I just don't yeah go ahead. It, it's going to require I think a lot more elucidation but I think that that question of um where does the VC money go um again with that psychology of disruption and that bias towards let's find a you know again maybe a back to the future solution but something very different than what is currently there to see if we can disrupt this uh, age, aged, uh, slow moving, uh, technology. Um, if what's required to get from the lab bench or the laboratory to commercial operations is a lot more time in the lab or the national labs, um, that's not really a place where you're going to earn a bunch of returns for VC, you know, in terms of investing in the versatile test reactor, for instance. Right. So how, how does VC or that, that, that private capital that's wanting a nice return, um, get that return and stay interested in nuclear if this stuff is still this kind of disruptive stuff that they're attracted to because of that base psychology is decades away or at least a decade away in terms of getting to reliable commercial operation where you can pay back um, the principal. So, you know, I, I think the model for this is biotech, right? So if we look at, you know, biotech is a much, much larger venture capital market uh, than the United, than, than nuclear is. Mm. I mean, probably by an order of magnitude, if not two. Um, and, uh, that model, um, is very much based on what the new, in my mind, that's very analogous to what the nuclear, uh, sort of VC model should look like, right? In that model, what you have generally is you have a huge amount of, you know, government funding here in the U S like NIH funding that is, you know, exploring the basic concepts that sort of bench research that is happening, right? And then a, a scientist or engineer, a scientist at the at a university will discover a promising, let's say, you know, signal transduction pathway where that through this, you know, government support, and it doesn't make sense, as you just said, for VC to just be supporting random researchers at universities. But what happens is those random researchers, right? And I, I've worked, you know, I've worked, I've actually done a lot of biological research in my, in my previous career, right? They will discover basically a promising uh, approach 
right, to say curing a disease or developing a drug, right? And it's at that point that the VC starts working on them with the commercialization. And what I think we need to be looking at is exactly like more like aloes in the world, right? More where, or Project Pele uh, as another example, where we have the Department of Defense basically building the first prototype reactors. And then we have companies like BWXT and X Energy. We're going to be building those prototypes. We have then commercial funding to basically take them and commercialize those first of a kind prototype reactors. And that's, that's a really comfortable place for VCs to be. It's a really comfortable place for the industry to be. And I think it would be really, really great. Because one thing the government isn't good at is commercializing technology, right? And, and we have this real ability to, I think, work synergistically. But I think we do need to understand a little bit more, maybe a little more humility in understanding that, that generally these things are very, very challenging engineering-wise. And we are going to, uh, we're going to encump- uh, encounter almost guaranteed challenges that we did not foresee at the paper planning stage or in our computer models. And it's just building in for that and understanding that, hey, we should have a, maybe a matching model with the DOE where we have DOE put in some money. We have the, the VCs put in some money. And that those first prototype plants really are going to be a shared you know, endeavor between you know, private investors and public backing. I really do think this is important for a technology like nuclear, where it's really, really hard, I think, to get it right the first time out of the box. And I, I think the VC, you know, injection into the nuclear space is fantastic. It's giving so much vitality and energy and getting young people so much more involved in the nuclear sector. I just think we need to do some policy tweaks here, right, to really make sure that we are we are planning for what I think we all anticipate, that the first reactors are not going to be perfect out of the box. I guess the question is, um, and, you know, any kind of analogy is imperfect. Um, and biotech does take a long time. Um, clinical trials take a long time. But at the end, you often get a, well, not often, but when you do, when you strike it rich, when you get a blockbuster drug, there's just an enormous payback on something which is... Um, that's the VC return model, right? Totally, totally. But you're producing, say, a pill, and that's, you know nothing like a nuclear plant and it's it's you know mass manufactured and highly productive facilities i, I just I, I question your analogy there the utility of that analogy just with again the slower pace of development in nuclear and the end product that you're deploying and its ability to generate massive returns well i think this is where we do get into the advantages of some particularly in the micro reactor side and truly manufactured mobile reactors right which is going to be small but those hypothetically could be mass produced you know you could get a manufacturing license from the nrc they're not they're not going to be like a small molecule or a monoclonal antibody or something but they are they they possibly could have uh not once again, you know, no metaphor is perfect, and I think you know this is a limitation. But they really could be in a much more manufacturable space. Uh, and I think the question that we all have to ask is, well, what are the challenges that we're going to be associated with building those small reactors? And are they going? And what are the applications that they're going to be? In my mind, it's going to be unlikely. But other people very much disagree and very smart people that we're going to have a world in which it's all thousands of small little microreactors lined up. I don't think that's what's going to happen. Right. For, but I think there's going to be a huge application for microreactors at remote off grid applications for mining, you know, where diesel fuel is basically used right now for military operations, as an example, for forward operating positions. Um, I, I think there's a huge possible place. And that's a very big market that could be disrupted. 
Um, so I think, yes, there is a, a analogy, you know, there is a, a breakdown there. On the other hand, I think that if we get on the larger space, if we really do get something that is systematized and productized in the way that we can build and deploy it, and we can really get reliably three year or four year builds out of it, you know, we build combined cycle gas turbines, right? Pretty quickly. And they're 400 megawatt plants. And we, we snap them together in a couple of years, generally, and sometimes even faster than that. I really do think there is, if you got into that place with a mature technology that really was able to do that, I really think we have the ability to have a VC-like return, right, on that. I'm just not so sure that that, that first gas turbine, quote-unquote, or that first reactor module that we build is going to be commercially viable. And the, the question that we as VC, if you're a VC, need to ask yourself is, well, what is the plan for getting through that death zone, right, that death zone where the first product has been built and it's having a lot of operational challenges that uh, weren't anticipated. And there's probably a light at the end of the tunnel, but how do we drive through that tunnel and survive commercially through that tunnel? And what I would just say is that, you know, the challenges that we're talking about with, you know, with these new, they go from small to large, right? Even the small, you know, the, the army in particular had huge programs in the 60s to develop really mobile, like ML1, which was literally on a couple backs of a couple trucks, right, to basically build small little reactors to be deployed in forward operating positions for in the case of ML1. What we saw with ML1 is that that plant never, I think, got above 60%, you know, of its outrate, of, of its, you know, design power. Forget about anything else, right? We really saw major, major challenges with getting for example, ML1 from a design perspective done. In fact, I think an army study concluded that it was going to be 10 times more expensive than deploying diesel fuel for that first reactor. And so, so what I'm trying to say is maybe that ML1 technology actually, I think it's pretty promising, but it's going to require a lot of tweaking to get it to a commercially viable position. And how do we as in a full private market, how do we fund that tweaking that needs to happen and keep that plant alive. I think one of the things I do not want to see happen and I'm worried about is the same thing that happened in so many of the large light water reactor builds where we abandoned the project a third or a half of the way, like a plant like Marble Hill or, or whoops, one, three, five, right? Uh, four as well, right? Where we literally just have these massive bulking or Cherokee, right? We have so many, you know, America is littered with half-built nuclear power plants. And what I, I'm trying to say is I, I believe in this technology. I believe that these small reactors and micro-reactors are going to be incredibly important. My question to you is, and to all of us, and I don't have the answer, is how do we have a, a way, and it could be government funding, there could be another alternative, where we can make sure that once we get through the hard stuff and build that first one, when we have the anticipated operational challenges, how do we see it to the end to actually finish that commercialization process? Right, right. We should leave it there, but just just one more question, um, and this this doesn't uh, apply to you know the potential higher value um, applications or products of nuclear like uh, like process heat, um, but that challenge of you know getting a big return on something which is undervalued, which is baseload reliable electricity, um, which is you know obviously not rewarded the same way that a natural gas plant is in a competitive market. Um, it is interesting to start seeing um, you know especially with the um, the thoughts around how energy intensive, uh, AI is going to be, and, you know, Microsoft looking for 
potential PPAs uh, with nuclear siting, nuclear microreactors at server farms. I mean, baseload is kind of cool. It's back both because we've realized that it's it's not a myth, but also there's value to having really reliable electricity, and that value is higher as we head into you know increasing grid fragility. Um, but yeah, in terms of that question of of uh, is is producing baseload um, just such a disadvantage to nuclear in terms of of generating you know good returns uh, in current market structures? So I think one of the the really interesting things that we have done uh, from policy perspective in the United States is introduce sort of put on a more level feeling than ever level playing field, excuse me, than ever before nuclear generators alongside renewable, you know, so-called renewable generators on basically giving the economic incentives. And one of the things that gives me the most hope about actually dealing with this problem is the production tax credit that we have built into the IRA, right, for new nuclear generators as well as existing nuclear generators. And that PTC, right, um, it, you know, gives basically an, a big incentive, if I may be so bold, for nuclear baseload to, to, to be built. Because at $15 per megawatt hour, a PTC, um, you know, you are all of a sudden, you know, if you're able to consistently, you know, rack up those megawatt hours, well, you're just going to get a very, very big rebate check at the end of the day, even if, right, the wholesale power markets aren't properly valuing your price, um, the, the, the price of the, the reliable baseload power that you're generating. And it's one of the reasons why we've seen this work, even in a state like my own, like New York State, Right, which is a deregulated power, so-called deregulated power market operated by the New York Independent System Operator. Right, even the small plants like Ganae upstate, uh, which is like a couple hundred megawatt little solo two-loop pressurized water reactor, has been kept online even in a very highly competitive wholesale power market by you know a state PTC that was put into place. And I think having a federal PTC is really going to change the name of the game on actually making nuclear power competitive. Now, in all honesty, we're kind of begging the question. The better question we should be asking ourselves is, well, how do we redesign our wholesale power markets such that they properly value the price of firm, you know, clean bulk generation? And I think that is another whole nuclear advocacy, you know, maybe it's a, a, a some sort of tax credit, but I think we really do need to be looking at the market designs in the deregulated markets of how we're going to properly value this. Because I think it's becoming increasingly clear that our current mo- models, especially in a, a place like an energy-only model like ERCOT, like in Texas, where we don't have any capacity market really, we're not properly valuing the social and economic benefits actually of having reliable, clean baseload power. And I think that, you know, maybe a PTC is a little bit of a Band-Aid for that. But we do need to figure some real serious ideas about how we reform the market structure so that they properly incentivize that in a deregulated power market. No, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, there's, there's never been a better time to build nuclear in America with, with the PTC you're talking about with an investment tax credit that I believe you build a nuke on a brownfield site with union labor, prevailing wage, and with a domestic supply chain, you're up to something like a 50% investment tax credit. You've got so, the PTC, exactly. the LPO has billions to, to shower. So I, I get this kind of frustration with well, why the hell isn't it happening? Well, so you're elect- I think I, I believe and don't quote me on the well, I guess I'm on a podcast, so it will be quoted. But I believe that the uh, I'm not sure, but I think you actually have to make an election whether the ITC or PTC gets chosen for a new nuclear project. But as you just said, 
If you build on a coal power plant site in the United States, and the, the, good, the good and bad things about a nuclear project is, is that the prevailing wage standards, for example, you'll never not be able to meet those prevailing <laughs> wage standards in a, in a nuclear power build. Um, yeah, yeah. So don't worry about that. And same thing with the domestic component stuff because it, it actually works out. You'll literally get 50% of the price that you build, and not just overnight costs. Including financing costs, right? On the day you commit, you know, you commission your plant, you'll get fifty percent back. And if you're a muni, you'll get it as a tax credit, which could be, you know, sold on the market and is transferable, and you'll get ninety percent, eighty percent on the dollar. But if you're a municipal utility, you will literally get a cash refund back from the IRS, right, for fifty percent of your power price. So just think about this. We have now just without doing anything, <laughs> right? We have split in half. The total construction cost of a nuclear power plant just by doing that. And that is a perfect example when I was talking to Chris about us talking more as nuclear advocates, about not waiting five years, 10 years to the next plant. We have licensed power plants in multiple states. We have something like close to a dozen gigawatts of new nuclear capacity that have been granted full COL. Some of them have been terminated by the licensee, but could probably be relicensed pretty quickly that have been fully licensed by the NRC. They've gone through all their hearings. They have an environmental impact statement issued, right? We are literally their turnkey in terms of construction. And with a COL, you don't have to have another ASLB hearing, an Atomic Safety and Licensing Board hearing, right, for operations, right? You, you don't need an environmental impact statement. All that is done. The siting is done. The hearings are done. The EPZ is planned out. We are there waiting to be built. And we don't talk enough about them. And I think part of the issue is the SMR mania, or they're not SMRs. But that's a pretty damn good thing to try to start building. And, and I think sometimes we've so sort of gotten fixated on SMRs, which once again have their place and are going to be very important technologies, that we've forgotten the little, those little sort of giants that exist in our in our midst that really could be transformative for getting those first couple new builds out. I'm kind of saying let's crawl before we walk, before we run, before we run a marathon. And if we want to get into a place where this industry can really deliver for its customers, which it needs to, a couple hundred gigawatts of new nuclear capacity, let's start on what we've done before and try to translate it and, and choose these sites, which now have literally zero regulatory burden in terms of getting a license and getting an environmental impact statement. Obviously, they're going to have to go, you know, their construction will have to go through the CROP, uh, Construction Reactor Oversight Program, to be monitored. But we really are in a good place uh, on that. So that, that's my, my own lesson. My lesson is, is like give, some, give the large modular reactors a little love. Let's give them a little love. Let's talk about them more. Let's understand their benefits as well as their disadvantages. Just like when we talk about SMRs, we should talk about their benefits and their disadvantages. That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to put, you know, rain on anyone's parade otherwise. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, we've got to leave it somewhere, James. Um, we could talk for hours and we probably will um, over the next uh, – God, who knows the time interval? Uh, but it's been great. Um, looking forward to getting this. I out. look forward to the deluge of hate I'm about to get uh, 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 from this episode. So uh, I think I, you've been pretty I, measured. I not I th- only, I think you've been pretty measured. I be cannot, surprised. I cannot even wait to what Twitter is going to do with me. Uh, but you know, that's that's I guess the risk I take. So be it. Bring it on. Okay, James. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Again.